to refresh everybody's memory. This book, Messiah Ben Joseph, is by David C. Mitchell, and basically it's a literature survey. So it's a survey of the mostly Jewish rabbinic literature on the subject of the Messiah Ben Joseph. And as I will remind you, going all the way back to Genesis and Deuteronomy, Joseph and Judah get most of the ink in the blessings of Jacob and Moses. Especially in the Deuteronomy 33 passage, it's very obvious that Joseph is set up to be a ruler, as is Judah. One of the things that's going on in the blessing of Isaac given to Jacob and Esau was Isaac tried to divide the blessing, and he tried to give what is essentially the blessing given to Judah to Esau, and the blessing of Abraham was always going to go to Jacob. That got short-circuited when Rebekah persuaded Jacob to sneak in and impersonate his brother, and so he wound up with both blessings. That split of blessing is successful under him. He succeeds in splitting the blessing between Judah and Joseph, which his father had tried to do between him and Esau. The way it's typically read is Joseph has the blessing of Abraham, which is fruitfulness and land, and Judah has the blessing of kingship. He's the royal line. As I'm going through the literature survey in this Messiah Ben Joseph, that isn't nearly as crisp as I had always thought it was. Because it turns out that in the rabbinic literature, and once it's pointed out to you in the Tanakh, it's fairly obvious that there's two messianic figures in Scripture, one out of the tribe of Judah and one out of the tribe of Joseph. What we're going to see tonight is there's actually three messianic figures. There's a priestly line of Messiah also. So we're going to be in Psalm 110 tonight, and the other place you're going to want to be is in Hebrews. We'll spend a considerable amount of time in Hebrews as well, because one of the things that Hebrews is is commentary on Psalm 110. So Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Several things as we're looking at this. Rabbinically, it is regarded as Josephite. And the reason for that is the references to the right hand. Because you remember at the end of Genesis, when Jacob was blessing the two sons of Joseph, he crossed his hands and he put his right hand on the younger, Ephraim, and he put his left hand on the elder, Manasseh. 
And of course, Joseph thought that he was blind and senile and tried to get him to uncross his hands. And he said, no, I know what I'm doing. That was the blessing. So the idea of the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So you have the right hand and then down here you have in verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. And according to Mitchell, the vocalization here in the Masoretic text indicates a difference, but if you go to the vocalization from the Septuagint, it isn't at all clear who is doing what and who the Lord is and who the king is. The pronouns are not at all clear, and the Masoretic vocalizations makes them that way. So it isn't clear here whether you have the Lord doing this, or you have an earthly king doing this, or you have an earthly king who is also the Lord doing this. You have all of that ambiguity, if you will, in the psalm. Some of the rabbinic literature also regards it as a Josephite psalm and a Josephite messiah. Because you remember in Deuteronomy 33, where he calls Joseph a wild ox that gores the nations. He becomes a conqueror. So all of that certainly fits within this psalm. Now, the other place we want to be is in Hebrews, because Hebrews, in large part, is a commentary on this psalm. I'm not going to read the entire book of Hebrews, so let's go down to Hebrews 4, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. So giving them rest talks about a Messiah, Joshua, from the tribe of Joseph, who led the people into the land for the conquest, and it was not successful, if you will, in bringing on the messianic kingdom. Verse 11, I'm continuing in Hebrews, Hebrews 4.11, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked, exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Yeshua, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what we have here is the introduction of Yeshua as a high priest. What the writer of Hebrews, I think is Paul, so I will refer to it as Paul. And if you don't believe it's Paul, just edit that out. It'll be okay. So what Paul is referring to here then is he is going to give us scriptural justification 
for calling Yeshua a priest. That's the point of the book of Hebrews, and in doing that, he is going to use Psalm 110 as his justification. So, chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So the purpose of a priest is to be an intermediary between God and men and to present the gifts of men to God on their behalf and also to offer their sacrifices on their behalf. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron would. The idea here is you have a human high priest who understands human beings, is able then to minister to them and deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. And one hopes that it teaches the ignorant and corrects the wayward. And he himself must bring sacrifices for his own sins. And the other part of that is the priesthood is established by God, not by humanity. It's a key point. The fact that Aaron's seed are the priests is something that God decided. It's not something Aaron woke up one morning and said, all right, Moses, you're the prophet. I'm going to be the priest. That did not happen. God selected him. And similarly then, God will select Yeshua as a priest. Verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, here we go, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are my son, today I've begotten you, is citation from Psalm 2. Remember we did Psalm 2 several weeks ago. In Mitchell's comment on the relationship between Psalm 2 and 110, is Psalm 110 is where the Messiah gets the kingdom that was promised to him in Psalm 2. He sees that connection. I neglected to mention this, but I will mention it now. Yeshua, when... He is duking it out with the Pharisees, and they ask him a question, by whose authority do you do this? And Yeshua says, well, all right, I'll tell you what. You answer my question, and I'll answer your question. My question is, David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, whose son is this Lord? If David is calling him Lord, then according to the normal way families work, fathers do not call their sons Lord. So if David is calling this guy Lord, whose son is he? And of course, the answer to that is he's the son of God, which is why this works both culturally and theologically. The point is, in this psalm, what God says back in 110 verse 4 The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then the subject back up at the beginning is the Lord says to my Lord. In other words, to David's Lord. 
God says to David's Lord, you are priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So what you have here is you have a tangle, if you will. If you don't believe that God has a son, as rabbinic Jews do not, then what you have is the conundrum that Yeshua posed when he asked him a question. Doesn't make any sense because David is calling his son Lord. That doesn't work. Works just fine if he is the son of God. It's also tangled in whose line this Messiah is from. Is he from the line of David or is he from the line of Joseph? Because remember, we have the business with the right hand. And this will all, by the way, get straightened out here in the book of Hebrews. That's what the book of Hebrews is unpacking for us. But as you read this, it's like, wait a minute. Is he from David or is he from Joseph? Is he a king or is he a priest? Because remember, in Israel, kings and priests are from different lines. Priests are from the line of Levi. Kings are either from Ephraim or Judah. You see all the tangle we've got in this psalm? And what Hebrews does is it unwraps that and explains to us how all that works. Now we're back to Hebrews. Let me pick it up at verse 5 again now. Verse, I mean Hebrews 5.5. 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. That entangles the first verse of 110. Whose son is he? And as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. So we have part of this untangled. The first part is his lineage. He is, in fact, the son of God and a woman who is of the tribe of Judah. And his legal father, of course, is Joseph. So you have the son of Joseph of the tribe of Judah, who is the son of God. That's what we've established by cross-referencing 110 and Hebrews. And then, on top of that, he has been made by God, his father, a priest. And since God is the one who ordains priests, so he is a priest. Now, there's some more untangling that's going to need to happen here, because remember, we said that in physical Israel, you have kings from Judah, you have kings from Ephraim, you have priests from Levi. So we need to untangle that. Verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Yeshua offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation in all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And your key words here are after the order of. We have a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek, 
we also have a priesthood in the order of Aaron. Those are two different orders of priesthood, and it's important that you keep those separate. And one of the things, God bless them, that the Sunday church doesn't do a good job of is keeping that distinction clear. They just simply say, he's a priest. Gee, that must mean that the other priests are now redundant. That's not what it means at all. It means that we have a different order of priesthood, and that becomes important in a minute. So verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Then we go through the business of milk and meat and distinguishing good and evil and so forth. So we're going to skip to 6.13. There's a whole bunch of encouraging stuff, telling them to buck up and not sin and all that kind of stuff. And all that's important, but it isn't what we're doing tonight. So, I'm now down at 6.13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so we're back to Melchizedek. We actually never left Melchizedek because it skipped a bunch of stuff, but... In the letter, we're now back to Melchizedek. Chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. That may be metaphorical. Because for those of you who have read the story of Melchizedek, which I'm sure pretty much everybody has, Melchizedek has no genealogy. Up until now, everybody you meet has a genealogy. So-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. And Melchizedek just sort of pops into the story. He's there for this one vignette, and we never hear from him again until we get to Psalm 110. So what the writer of Hebrews, Paul, is saying here is this guy is special and unique in Scripture because he doesn't follow the pattern of every other important character in Scripture. He doesn't have a genealogy. We don't find out what happened to him later. He just shows up for this one vignette, and that's it. And the only thing we know about him is Abraham gave him a tithe. We also only know of his name. That's it. Now, there are those, and I, some days I'm among them, some days I'm not. This may have been Yeshua himself pre-incarnate. 
There are several instances in the Tanakh that appear to be Yeshua having shown up ahead of time. One of them, I believe, is when Joshua meets the angel of the Lord at Jericho. Joshua is circling Jericho and he comes upon this big dude with a drawn sword and he says, are you for us or for enemy? And the guy says, no, I'm the commander of the Lord's host. I'm here to take charge. And the thing that separates him from an angel is Joshua takes his shoes off because he's on holy ground and Joshua offers him worship. In the book of Revelation, as well as in the book of Daniel, whenever a human tries to offer an angel worship, the angel says, stop, don't do that. I am a fellow creature like you are, worship God. This commander did not do that. He accepted worship, which is an indicator to me that it may have been Yeshua. Melchizedek doesn't accept worship, but he does accept a tithe, which again is something that is typically rendered to God. Or in the case of Melchizedek, a priest of God is accepting the tithe. The point that Paul is making is this guy's weird because of his lack of genealogy and lack of disposition. He may be weird because it was Yeshua, or he may be weird because that's simply the way the book was written to make that point. I don't know which it is. And notice in chapter 7, verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of light, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the idea there is he is intended to look like the Son of God, whether he actually is or not. So then we have a riff between verses 4 and 10, where Paul says the fact that Abraham gave tithes to this guy, metaphorically, so did Levi. Because Levi was not yet born. He was still three generations back in Abraham's loins. So figuratively, if you will, when Abraham gave a tithe to Melchizedek, similarly, Levi was tithing to Melchizedek, both of which show that Melchizedek is superior both to Levi and to Abraham. That's basically what's happening in verse 4 through 10. So now let's go down to verse 11 in chapter 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? You see the difference here. You've got the order of Aaron and you've got the order of Melchizedek. And that distinction is important. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well because the priesthood is set up by the Torah. So if you're going to change the priesthood, you've got to change the Torah. That's what he's saying. The priesthood's going to change, the Torah's got to change. There hasn't been a change in the Torah. Also important. Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, 
And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So the Torah hasn't changed. If we're going to change the priesthood, we've got to change the Torah. Moses didn't say anything about it. Verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it was witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, quoting from Psalm 110. So what he's saying here is, he is made a priest not by virtue of law in the Torah, but by sovereign action of God as witnessed by the fact that he is indestructible having risen from the dead. So on down to verse 18. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest by an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Priests after the order of Aaron become priests simply by order of birth. There's no oath involved. The order of Melchizedek was made priest by an oath of God. One is made a priest by a law, which is to say, God said, all right, this is the way it's going to be. Those guys are going to be priests, period. No oath involved, simply the Torah. Melchizedek priesthood was made by an oath on God's part, where he swore that his son would be a priest forever. Verse 22. This makes Yeshua the guarantor of a better covenant. True statement, obviously. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Having been raised from the dead, he does not die as an earthly priest dies. So you don't have to have another earthly priest standing in the door when the first priest assumes room temperature and he has to step in and take over. That doesn't apply to the order of Melchizedek. It doesn't apply to Yeshua. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and resulted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So he made one offering. That was sufficient. Doesn't need to be done again. 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The way I would describe it is he is a priest outside of the law. There's nothing in the law, the Torah, that authorizes him to be a priest. He is not made a priest according to the Torah. He is made a priest by sovereign action of God outside of the law. Let's go to chapter 8 now. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. 
one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent with the Lord set up, not man. Notice we're back to the right hand again. I just wanted to point that out because the right hand figures prominently in Psalm 110 as well. And a list of things that a priest does, and I'm going to skip over that, and go down to verse 6. I'm in 8.6 now. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, all right, ding, 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 ding. We'll stop. Verse 8 again. He finds fault with them. He does not find fault with it. So the problem with the covenant at Sinai is not the words of the covenant. The problem is the people who would not keep it and the medium on which it is written. Sinai was intended to be the consummation of a marriage between God and Israel. And at the consummation of a marriage, the husband puts seed into his wife with the intention of passing on life. God's word is seed. It's information. What he intended to do was write his Torah on their heart at the foot of Sinai. They said, stop. If we hear his voice anymore, we're going to die. Moses, you go up, find out what he's got to say, come back, we'll listen to you, we'll do what you say. We don't have a problem with obedience. Well, they do have a problem, but they don't know that yet. We don't have a problem with obedience. We just can't hear the voice of God because if we do, we'll die. That's when the medium became tablets of stone because the bride had hearts of stone. So the Torah, as spoken by God, was always intended to be written on the human heart. The problem with it is it's written on tablets of stone, which is not where it's supposed to be. And you can look at the entire Bible as the process of getting humanity to the point where the Torah can be written where it's supposed to be. That's the whole point of the book, is getting us to the point where he can write his Torah where he wanted to write it to begin with. So the problem here with the first covenant is not the words, it is the medium on which it is written and the people who were unable to keep it because it was not written where it was supposed to be written. And then starting in verse 8, we have a recitation of the new covenant from Jeremiah 31. The new covenant is in Deuteronomy. The new covenant is in Isaiah. The new covenant is in Jeremiah. The new covenant is in Ezekiel. The metaphor is different each time, but the idea is the same. In Deuteronomy, the metaphor is circumcision of the heart. In Jeremiah, it's writing on hearts of flesh. In Ezekiel, it's removing the heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. It's all the same concept, just different metaphors. So what most of Christianity believes is the new covenant is a citation from Jeremiah. So the other part of that is, of course, the New Covenant is not a New Testament concept. It is a Torah concept. It goes all the way back to Sinai. 
couple of things about this. I'm not going through covenants right now very much, but behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms. And then down to verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Most people, myself very much included, see the new covenant as being made with a united Israel. It starts off with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And when you get down to this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, they are united. That is the two sticks coming together. And by the way, with the exception of the Noahide covenants, there are no covenants with Gentiles. It's all Israel. Down to verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Notice the words there. He doesn't make the first covenant void. He makes it obsolete. There's a difference. You can tell they're spelled differently. Void is when you cancel something out and do something different. Obsolete is when it is still in effect, still useful, but is in the process of being replaced with something newer. Having spent years and years in the Army, we always were working with obsolete equipment. When the M16 rifle came in, the M14 became obsolete. I spent years firing an M14 rifle, even after it was obsolete. Still worked really well. Obsolete and void are not the same thing. And so what's going on here, it is becoming obsolete and growing old and is ready to vanish away. It will vanish away when we get a heart transplant. That's when the vanishing away will be complete. Those words are really important. The Torah is not void. The tablets of stone are obsolete. Really important because there's a whole lot of the body of Christ that thinks the Torah has been done away with. It hasn't. The tablets of stone are obsolete. I'm going to go down now to chapter 10. We have this whole discussion in chapter 8 and 9 about the process of sprinkling blood and the high priest going into the Holy of Tolies, and, and you're all familiar with that, and I'm not going to go through it in detail. So now on chapter 10. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, understand that there are no sacrifices in the Torah for willful sin. All of the sin offerings in Torah are for unintentional sin. It says that very specifically. It says things like, when somebody realizes he has sinned, so the idea is he didn't sin with a high hand, he screwed up. And so the sin offerings in the Torah, with one exception, do not handle willful sin. The one exception is Yom Kippur. And the point that is being made here in the book of Hebrews is Yom Kippur has to happen year by year because you get all cleaned up on Yom Kippur and by the time you get around to the next one, you've got to be cleaned up again. 
So that's the idea of over and over. Start back in 10 again. For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of a true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And this is again a psalm of David, and it's Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. So the idea here is Yeshua being of a different order of priesthood brings a different sacrifice and his sacrifice which is his own blood is the only sacrifice that atones for willful sin all the stuff in the temple and the tabernacle did not was not intended to could not nobody thinks it could jews don't we don't so what the idea here is That's going back to the orders of priesthood. The priesthood of the order of Aaron was incapable of offering sacrifices for forgiveness of willful sin because that order of priesthood didn't have a sacrifice in their table that covered that. So what you have here is a different order of priesthood and you have a different table of sacrifice and you have a different venue. So the order of Aaron makes its sacrifices in the tabernacle or the temple on the earth, which is a copy of the one in heaven. The order of Melchizedek serves in the one in heaven with a different sacrifice, which is the blood of Yeshua, which is offered one time So you have a different order of priesthood, you have a different venue, you have a different table of sacrifice. Completely different purpose. So when the Sunday church, God bless them, says that when the Jews fire up the temple again and start making sacrifices, that's an insult to the blood of Yeshua. No, it's not. They are completely orthogonal, 90 degrees to one another. They have nothing to do with each other. So if the tabernacle fires up and by the way it will be fully operational during the millennial kingdom so there'll be sacrifices and all that kind of stuff according to the torah in the millennial kingdom prophecy says so there's no problem with that doesn't invalidate cheapen smear besmirch anything else the sacrifice of yeshua because he's of a different order of priesthood and he sacrifices in a different venue And he is made a priest by a different mechanism. He's made a priest by the oath of God as opposed to being made a priest by being physical descendant of Aaron. Totally different. That's what this book of Hebrews is talking about. And as I say, it is a riff on Psalm 110. Now the other thing that's going on in Psalm 110 goes back to Deuteronomy 33. 
Remember in Deuteronomy 33, Moses says that Joseph is a firstborn bull. What is the destiny of a firstborn bull? It's a sacrifice. Says in Exodus, the firstborn of your flocks and herds, you'll sacrifice to me. So you have a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, who is a firstborn bull, who shows up in a tabernacle in heaven, of which the earthly one is a copy, and offers his own blood as a firstborn bull. It's all consistent. And this twining, if you will, of Joseph and Judah all comes together here in Psalm 110, where you've got the Lord sitting at the right hand of the Lord, you got a priest forever according to the Melchizedek, and then you've got a conquering king. And it all comes together here. And what the book of Hebrew does is it unpacks that for you, so that you can see what's going on. The question was, what happens if somebody comes to Aaron, having committed a willful sin, what can Aaron do for him? And Psalm 51, of course, is David confessing his sin with Bathsheba. So he has committed a sin of adultery, which is a stoning offense. He has committed murder by proxy, which is a stoning offense. So Psalm 51, 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then down on to verse 14. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. In other words, David said, if we could clear this with bulls and goats, I got a whole country full of them. We both know that's not going to work. There's no sacrifice for what I did. So 16 again. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Then he goes on. 18. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In other words, if you accept my repentance... Then I can come sacrifice, and I will do so. But the only thing that is going to clear my sin, which is adultery and murder, is me humbling myself before you and asking for forgiveness. Certainly Aaron might do a pastoral thing, and that's what Nathan does. Nathan, when he confronts David with his sin, that's exactly what he's doing. And certainly a priest would do something similar, but there isn't anything in the ritual.